Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome two regular panelists uh, and two extreme scholars of the Amdiya Muslim community to Faith Matters this morning. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Just in terms of brief introduction, of course, to my immediate right is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who is president of the Qazar Board, the Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK. And to his right, of course, is Maulana Abdul Ghani Jangir Khan Sahib, who is a uh, senior missionary here in the UK, as well as head of the French desk. Welcome, gentlemen, and we'll get straight to it, as they say. And we're going to travel to India for our first question, which comes from Mamoon Rashid Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Mamoon Sahib. Uh, thank you very much for your question. Um, gentlemen, he's asking that he's read and indeed heard from various people that people sometimes recount the fact that they've seen the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in their own dreams. His question is a simple one. How do people actually know that is indeed the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him? Jahangir Sahib. Um, the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallam, is on record for having said that Satan cannot impersonate me in a dream. Now having said that, the question which arises, and I remember the fourth uh, caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he did once raise this question and said that the question is, how would one know that the person appearing in the dream really is the Prophet if one hasn't seen him before? So Satan wouldn't take on the form of the Prophet, but he could take on another form and, and uh, you know, pretend to be the Prophet and say, that uh, you know, do this or do that, and actually it's not the Prophet وسلم, you know, at all in the, in the dream. Now what's the significance at all of seeing the Prophet وسلم? Does he really appear in one's mind, or is it something else? We've, we're talking about dreams here, so obviously um, uh, we, we must know that this has a metaphorical significance, and it isn't the actual soul of the Prophet وسلم, appearing you know, into the person, in, inside the person's mind, but it's a, a manner that Allah uses to convey some kind of message of uh, significance to the person, or maybe for somebody else, but through this person, using somebody uh, you know, as a reference of uh, authority, so that the person could know that this is a message coming from God himself. Because one cannot see God, but one can understand things you know, which relate to the world, and one of, them are, you know, one of these things are the prophets themselves. So in that case, the only way to determine whether the person seen in the dream was the Prophet ﷺ or not would be to see the content of, of the dream. What was, was, the, was the Prophet doing? ﷺ? What did he say? And if it doesn't contradict the Holy Quran and doesn't contradict his, his authentic sayings and doesn't contradict the spirit of Islam as such, then chances are this dream would be one which would be true. But to be very sure, it's always a good thing to refer the dream back to the authority, the spiritual authority of the time, who in this case would be the Khalifa himself, and allow him to, to, to judge 
the merit of the dream as such. Just before we move on, uh, Dr. Zaitsev, also, I mean, taking it one step further, I mean, quite often people say they've experienced God in dreams or whatever, and they've seen, and sometimes they, that God resembled a bright light, a powerful being, etc. So, I mean, that's also quite, you know, you hear instances such as that. Yes, it's, it's the person's perception mm -hmm. of what he has seen in a dream. And sometimes, I mean, we, we talk about seeing in a dream. Sometimes it's not the actual physical sight in a dream. It is what your mind gets imprinted upon you, that this is what you have seen. Sometimes people have dreams uh, and they're not able to recount that dream accurately. Or if asked to describe a certain personality they have seen in a dream, they may not, not be able to do so accurately. And therefore, it is a perception that one has that this is what I have felt, an, a general aura of whether I have seen God and what God has addressed me, or whether we have seen prophet or any other person. So it is a sense that our mind takes on that impression that this is the message that was given to me, and this was the person who gave me that message. And as Jahangir Sahib has said, depending on the context of the dream mm -hmm. and the message that was contained in, in it, then therein lies the secret as to what was the source or what was the message that was contained in that dream. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah. Again, I'm sure that, you know, the questions such as this, we can take a great deal more time over, but uh, I thank you again for answering it in your usual characteristic uh, way with great aplomb. And uh, my thanks also to Mamoun Rashid Saab for his question. Um, we're going to move back to home territory, as they say, back to here in London for our next question, which comes from Imran Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Imran Sahib, and thank you for your question, which relates to um, our five senses, the human five senses. And he's asking that can all realms of existence be truly understood, truly comprehended? And can beings which are unable to perceive be denied? Um, a sort of deep, sort of philosophical, I think, question there as well. Jahangir Saab. Five senses, obviously, we're all, and often we're said we can, you know, we can smell things, we can see things, so on and so forth. But here he's saying, at times, is there things that all realms of existence? Well, I think the question itself answers itself, doesn't it? Um, there are so many things which we, don't, we can't uh, detect with our five senses. For example, radio waves, you know, radio transmissions, we can't detect those with our five senses. We need, we need special apparatus for that, you know, to be able to detect them. And uh, if you're going to ask somebody, you know, based in religion, are there any beings that are out there that we can't detect with our senses? Well, the obvious answer would be, well, there's God for starters, isn't there? And that's the whole issue, isn't there? Why, why don't people believe in God? It's because they can't detect God with their five senses in the first place. Mm -hmm. But the answer is, is, of course, there are so many things which we can't detect with our senses, and yet they exist. So just to say that I can't detect them with these senses and therefore it doesn't exist, it just doesn't follow from that. And we get into this <coughs> issue of evidence then, don't we? Because, I mean, when you're yes. having a discussion with, say, someone who's agnostic, but say, even, you know, is atheist, yeah. they say, well, you know, oxygen you know exists because you're breathing, yes. for example. Um, it has to have an effect. effect absolutely, yes. cause and effect is something which So there is, there is of course, this uh, effect coming from God as well. When God speaks to somebody, people say, okay, well, how do we know he's speaking to you? He said, well, he's telling me things that I don't know of. And they'll say, well, like what, for example? And he said, well, things about the future that nobody can know. And when God says this once, twice, thrice, and goes on 10 times, 20, or 200, 2,000 times, mm -hmm. I mean, there must be a, 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 you know, you have to draw the line somewhere and say, okay, I'm going to stop d disbelieving now. There must be something here. 
you know, some people will start believing after one thing happening, and some after ten, some after a hundred. But there is, there must be a limit somewhere. I, I said that once actually in uh, at Cambridge University, when I, I had to address a group of, of uh, young budding scientists there mm -hmm. on the existence of God, and I, I spoke about extraterrestrials. It would be quite the same thing. Actually, if extraterrestrials started uh, contacting somebody, everybody would be in disbelief in the beginning. But if they started giving blueprints for making you know, amazing machines that are way beyond our technology, after how many machines that are actually working according to these blueprints would they start believing that, yes, there must be something sending these messages from out there? You know, there has to be somewhere where one draws the line. But I, I suspect this question has something to do with something other than God. Probably the questioner wants to know about other creatures, and of course, there are other creatures out there. We know, for example, there were certain creatures which are hidden and which in Arabic, which is a generic term, we'll call jinn, which can be an umbrella term for so many things, which are hidden. As long as they're hidden, they're jinn. Uh, we know that there have been encounters of this type before. The Khulafa have spoken about these as well. Even personal encounters with some of these creatures which are inexplicable, you know, as far as uh, science is concerned. But they exist and they did things and there were effects that they left behind. So we can't deny the existence mm. of these creatures with, with which we have a brush every so often. So it's not like a common occurrence though, you know, as some people might want you to believe. But uh, they, they, there are things out there, you know, like they say, the truth is out there. So yeah, yeah. carry on uh, <laughs> searching as well. And Dr. Zaisab, there's always, I mean, even within the realms of science, some things which we've seen over the years, the century and millenniums, you know, that have been discovered in terms of creatures as well, in terms of we're talking about scientific discovery, where sometimes what can't be seen or felt or, you know, by, by <coughs> man and their common eye, it's only through microscopes and further discoveries that now, coming back to a point that Jung Hirsaf said, the evidence has now come, mm. the science mm. has come, so you can no longer deny their existence. Absolutely, I mean, knowledge has come a long way. And despite all scientific progress that we have seen as, as far as instrumentation is concerned, we still are aware that there are many, many creatures, many, many organisms, many uh, species that lay undetected even to this day. Yeah. And that, I think, is uh, an indication of the creation of God Almighty, isn't it? That despite progress that man has made, there are still many organisms which we are not aware of. And then the same argument can be put out, not only towards living organisms, but absolutely all types of things that are surrounding us the visible light, uh, or light in fact, when we are only able to see the visible portion of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. And despite the other uh, instrumentation that is out there, there is still other matter which is still undiscovered. And as, as man makes progress, then obviously this comes, comes to light. So our knowledge and our senses are very much limited, <coughs> and we do, re do rely on other things to give us broader knowledge of what is out there. And this again brings man back to the creator who must have created all of this and to the vastness of his creation. And this is the marvel we have of Allah the Almighty. Gentlemen, Azabajazakumullah for your answer to my thanks also to Imran Ahmed Saab for your question. Um, we're going to travel to Kampala in Uganda for our next question, which comes from Kiyinji Zahid Muburu. Um, Jazakumullah for your question and thank you for your kind comments about uh, faith matters. Um, Dr. Sabi is asking, um, what is the underlying similarity and indeed difference between three terms which are sometimes used um, interchangeably and they're sort of, uh, are they the same thing indeed? And he's talking about jinn, mm -hmm. Satan, and Iblis. 
Yes, this, uh, these three terms, as, as you say, do become intermixed. Yeah. And sometimes the message seems to be that they are one and the same thing. And at, at other times, other people <coughs> believe that they are separate entities as, as such. Um, but uh, our broader knowledge of these terms comes perhaps from the Holy Quran, first and foremost. And we are able to separate and segregate how these differ amongst each other. The jinn is mentioned in, in the Holy Quran, and if you look at the Arabic root of this word, mm -hmm. then anything that has a concealment identity to it, something that is segregated or stays aloof from the common people, then all of these are said to be in the, in the realm of the jinn. For instance, snakes. So rather than an entity itself, it could be something, what, what it could be a, a movement, it could be a group of people, it could be creatures as you were about to explain That's snakes right. as yes. well. Yes, yes. Uh, for instance snakes yeah. uh, as you say because they stay hidden away from uh, normal sight, they're hidden away in nooks and crannies and in, 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 in craves, they are considered as jinn as well. But at the same time we learn from the Holy Quran and from the Holy Prophet that there are other creatures, for instance bacteria which were not discovered of course in the time of the Holy Prophet mm -hmm. but he gave indication that there were organisms which we could not see at that time, and the, these were uh, re, these are referred to as jinn as well. But then there are certain categories of human beings who are also termed as jinn. We have the famous incident of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. on his way back to Taif. Uh, he was uh, at Nakhla when he was reciting the Holy Quran at night, and it is said that the jinn listened to the Holy Quran and then went back to their people and were able to tell them about the Holy Quran. They were a people who were visiting from Syria, from Nasbian, and they were in, in the darkness of the night, so they were hidden away, and they too listened to the Holy Quran. And people who are chieftains, who do not mix with the normal people or uh, ordinary people, ins, they are called jinn as well. So they may be human beings in, in a certain degree, but all of them has, have this aspect of secrecy or staying aloof or hidden away. Mm -hmm. So jinn from that angle has to be understood within that realm as well. Whereas uh, Satan or Iblis is an evil inclination uh, because we also understand that from the Holy Prophet who has said that there is a Satan in every person. He runs in the blood of every so we're, person. So we're not talking about sort of dragon-tailed, you know, pointed, you know, eared, red in face, carrying a fork. I mean, that, that's an image which is often painted about that's that an, constitutes Satan. That's the, right, yeah. That, that, that the is devil, the, 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 the devil, as, yeah. as they were. But the Prophet having said that this is in every person, and he runs around in person, means that he influences people. So it is a sense that one has of an evil inclination or distraction. And the companions asked the Prophet ﷺ, do you have a Satan in yourself as well? He said, yes, I do, but he has submitted. He has become a Muslim, so that his evil inclinations have been put aside totally. So from that angle, Satan can be understood as that. And Iblis is perhaps the personification of Satan it, that takes uh, the form of someone who is totally evil and is, is actually inclining people towards himself mm -hmm. and leading them astray, uh, as we have the case of Hazrat Adam salam, that the Iblis is, is, is the being that tried to lead him away from God Almighty and lead him away from the right path. So these three terms, as I say, have got sort of different entities as such, but are often understood 
as being the same thing, but they're not always understood as, as such as, as that is going to be. Just picking up on a few points, if I may, as well. I mean, I mean, in a more common terms, quite often, just sort of, if you like, emphasizing the point Dr. Saab has said about mischievous nature, even when children, when they be, behave, sometimes mothers or fathers will say, oh, yeah, you know, the little devil, you know, he, he got up to all kinds of mischief. So even in common, you know, in society, in common usage, rather, it's mischievous nature or doing something which is wrong is immediately associated. It refers to a human being. being yes. yes, I totally concur yeah. with uh, Dr. Saab on this. Actually, the second Khalifa, as a Muslim of the of the Ahmadi uh, Jamaat, in his book Sayyid Ruhani, gave a very interesting uh, bit of insight, you know, into the the, the meaning of jinn vis-à-vis Adam. And he said that uh, actually the jinn in the beginning, when you're speaking in human terms, of, you know, when you say that the jinn means humans, it was those humans who used to live in caves and who used to conceal themselves from the outside world. They didn't live in the open. When God revealed to Adam that he was supposed to start living in the open, that's when he became Adam. Because Adam in Arabic is derived from two roots, one which means which lives on the open, uh, open spaces of the, of the earth, and the other means which uh, the person who gets a tan, because he's in the sun. So he's not concealed in the caves. And when he moved out into the open, because this was a break from the tradition <coughs> which had been going on for millennia, where people were living in caves, there was a natural reaction against this. People didn't like change. Nobody, no, nobody ever likes change, do they? And so the people um, from among the jinn were opposing him. And at the f uh, foremost of, of those people was one Iblis, who was a personification of Satan, who was totally, you know, had, who had submitted to his evil inclinations, Satan, in other words. And uh, he was opposing Adam. So there was this idea of jinn being historically the people who were living in caves and who were therefore concealed, as opposed to Adam. And we are the children of Adam, so we are the ones who live out in the open now. We build our houses out in open ground. We don't live in caves anymore. So this is an interesting you know, uh, little view of, uh, of what these terms actually mean. But the notion of evil, Jazakumullah, but the notion of evil is still there because even whilst living in the open, people are still inclined. Yes, of course, that's Satan yeah. is, is always there. Whether you live in caves or whether you live in the open, Satan is that inclination within you. And it also can represent a, a, a spirit, a, a spiritual being like angels, whose task is to, to entice you more towards evil, playing on that evil inclination that you have in you already. Just as angels play on your inclination towards good, which you also have already, so angels will try to entice you to, to do towards goodness. And Satan can be that spiritual entity as well. So we're not denying that there could be a spiritual entity called Satan. But we are denying that Iblis is some kind of a spiritual entity. Iblis is, is, a, is a human being, any human being, who submits totally to Satan in such a way that there is no goodness left in him, so, so to speak. So he becomes, you know, Satan or the devil personified. We're far removed from what uh, you were saying just now when you know, little children are called you little, little no, devil. No, I was saying it's, still yeah. in it's interesting. I was just picking on, on human nature that when something is done which is mischievous or... Yes, you yes know, exactly. Uh, but it's never meant yeah. to mean you know, that they've turned into some evil spirit. Obviously, yeah. it doesn't mean that. Yeah, we, we, yeah. we leave that personification to the realms of uh, Hollywood and <laughs> you know, uh, yes. things such as Omen and what uh, have exactly. you. Um, th gentlemen, as ever, thank you. And my thanks also to... Um, Kian Zaid Miburu for your question. Um, our next question, um, we're going to travel now from Africa to the Far East, to Japan in actual fact, to Nii Sumuno Saparo, 
for, in Sapporo, Japan. Uh, thank you very much for your questions. Um, and thank you for your kind comments about faith matters as well. Um, three questions, but I think we can take these in a collective manner. They're all to do with um, children and uh, Islamic injunctions related to families and, bring, and children. Um, the first one is, are there any particular Islamic injunctions to decide on the number of children one should have? And related to this, how can this be related to the verse of the Holy Quran that speaks about not killing our children for fear of poverty? And it's quoted um, Quran chapter 17, verse 32. And the third sort of related question is, can one make a decision within Islamic injunctions that after a particular age, not to bear children? So the first one, Dr. Zaid Saab, you know, is there any Islamic injunction on the number of children? Well, Islam, you know, generally teaches balance because there's, there's balance in the creation of Allah. So it teaches balance in every aspect of our life and that includes our family life, that we have to have a balance that we are perhaps comfortable with and we know that we are going to be able to succeed in, in that aspect. As far as the number of children are concerned, that also is something, a matter for the couple to decide upon looking at their circumstances and these are not just financial circumstances as far as that is concerned because bringing up children as I'm sure we all realize is something that is a full <laughs> full lifetime commitment and you more. know and and more perhaps <laughs> so it, 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 it does it, it does bear upon us and therefore we, we must be comfortable within our surroundings within our comfort zone to be able to be able to do the best for our children in, in that respect um, but the other thing that one must, uh, so these, this is something that is decided by people in general. But when we relate it to the verse of the Holy Quran in which says, do not kill your children for fear of poverty, it actually explains to us that Allah actually is the provider of mm. all things. That he is the one who has given us sustenance and he is the one who, is, who, who provides for us. Man should never in his mind have this notion that I am the provider for my family and that I will be able to provide for them or I will not be able to provide for them. That's arrogance on, on one nature and it does not rely on the ability of God to provide for your family. So from that angle we should also be able to understand as to what the responsibilities would be for the number of children that we would have in our family. But the, the, the aspect of do not kill your children actually I remember in the last Ramadan, Hazrat uh, Khalifatul Masih, the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, gave a very deep explanation of this aspect from a, a point of training and responsibility of what he meant was, what, how, what does it mean that do not kill your mm -hmm. children? And it was that you should also obviously bring your children up so that they are, they are capable citizens of society and that they, they are useful citizens of society so that they become a, an important part of society and they are beneficial to the society that they live in. So you give them a good upbringing, mm -hmm. you teach them good morals and you make sure that they don't disregard the commandments that there are for keeping peace within society. So one has to understand this aspect from that angle as well. So keeping all that in mind, Islam gives you choice and having had that choice, one actually has to decide according to one's own uh, situation and, and current situation there is out there. Jazakumullah. Jangir Sahib, just, I mean, and also picking up on um, Nii's uh, final question about ages and what have you. But generally speaking, Islam, as Dr. Sahib has rightly said, is there's a lot of flexibility 
there as well. I mean, the issue of family planning, for example, yes, within families. Yes. Exactly, yes. And I, I think, you know, it's an issue which often, too often, within yeah. Muslim circles or uh, religious circles is seen as taboo, yet it's a very real mm. question, and it's a question which confronts all people. And one of the issues which arises is, you know, one of, as Dr. Saab said, but not alone, one looks at economics, but the importance of moral uh, upbringing, the education of children, the responsibility, being able to provide mm. and provide properly, not having yeah. 12 children and not being able to provide for yes. anyone. Surely that goes against God's design and yes. uh, direction as well. But taking this issue of family planning, that first of all, uh, there is a misconception out there that somehow Islam doesn't allow for such things to exist. You see, we can't equate family planning with abortion. Mm -hmm. So if they're two separate yes, there are two yeah. separate things. Family planning was actually practiced even at the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's on record in the hadith. It's not forbidden as such. Mm -hmm. If you don't allow a child to come into existence, then you're not killing it. Mm -hmm. But if it's already there, and then you decide that oh well, there's only so much room in the swimming pool for, for the children I have, mm -hmm. I can't have any more, mm -hmm. then that would then you go for an abortion. That would be killing your child. Mm -hmm just because of X, Y, Z reasons, which is forbidden. But the, the one which, is, which Allah says, is, uh, which He does forbid, is don't kill your children for fear of poverty, as uh, Dr. Saab has already said. Mm -hmm. So fearing that one will not be able to provide for a child which is already on the way, one should remove that from one's mind. If the child is coming, God has sent this child, and uh, now you have to look after it, whether it's your twelfth child or your seventh child or whatever. But uh, then again, you know, to, to say that uh, um, until this certain age, you know, I'm going to have children after yeah. that I can't, that can be down to very, you know, uh, blatant practicalities. Yeah. Um, it could be dangerous for women at a, after a certain age to bear children. And if at that age they decide to go for family planning, there's nothing, there's no harm there. People shouldn't, uh, you know, feel that they're interfering with the, the laws of God by doing that when it's something which is practiced even at the time of the Holy Prophet Zakam, gentlemen, and again, I mean, it's one of these things which, as you aptly said, well, both of you have said, it's about choice, and Islam, enjoy, you know, enjoins choice about on people. But also, I think people sometimes forget it's about common sense as well, and uh, too often prescriptive answers are sought when common sense answers are there to be uh, seen. Um, my thanks to Ni Sumanu for your question. Um, we're going to move to Ghana for our next question, which comes from. Abdul Ghanou, which is um, relating to the Tuskara, which are some revelations of the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, who we regard to be the promised Messiah. And um, Dr. Saab, he's writing and saying that, can you, he's got two questions, but his first one is related to the uh, actual revelations themselves. And he's saying that some of these are recorded as being revealed to the promised Messiah in English amongst other language. And he's saying that this is despite the fact that this was perhaps a language that the promised Messiah himself, whilst he understood and spoke, wasn't proficient in, mm -hmm. to an extent or in the way the revelations are revealed. Um, why was that, I suppose, is the question he's posing. Well, we have to consider that uh, revelation to prophets, um, it gives us the impression that there is a living God. And he speaks, in the, as he did, spoke in the past, he continues to speak. So this is the beauty of Islam, that we have a religion, a living religion with a living belief in a living God who still communicates today as he communicated in the past. And Hazrat Masih Ahmad, the promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, was continually addressed by God Almighty through revelation. And this was such an incessant process 
that there was not a, a, a day without which he would not re receive revelation. And many of his revelations we know were in Arabic, many were in Persian, many were in Urdu, and there were some in English as well. But we have a two-way communication, and the fourth Khalifa used to explain it from this angle, that you have Allah the Almighty, he is the transmitter. He used to say that Allah is the transmitter, the Prophet is the receiver of this transmission. Mm -hmm. And obviously Allah the Almighty there is not limited to one language. So he in his wisdom has given revelations in different languages and the transmitter is the Prophet himself and the Prophet actually put, actually relays that back and this happened in the case of the Promised Messiah that he did receive some uh, revelations in English. Um, there are limited number in English and these are recorded but perhaps it also gives us cre gives credence to the fact that these were revelations from Almighty, perhaps in a language that he was not very familiar with, that he would not have made up revelations in a language that he was not familiar with. So it is proof that these were from Allah the Almighty, and I have said it was for Allah to decide which language on whom he would uh, actually give these and revelations the to. Jangir Saab, and picking up on this point, as reading through this question, even going down, back to the time of the founder of Islam, you know, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you know, his first uh, revelation was recite, you know, yes. but the fact that he was educationally perceived as illiterate and he himself was, how can I do this when I don't have a formal That's education? That's true, and it's another interesting thing about the Prophet ﷺ is that even he received revelations in another language. Mm -hmm. He received, at least on record it is uh, said that he received a revelation in Persian. And he didn't know what it meant and he had to ask for people to say what it was. And it was, in Which means that this no, I was going to say, I'll, you'll have to ask, yeah, I'll have to ask. <laughs> this handful of, uh, of earth, yeah. which is man, mm -hmm. if I don't forgive it, forgive it, what will I do with it? Like Allah is saying that, you know, that he's feeling pity for his own creation, which is man, which is just a handful of earth. Mm -hmm. So what will I do if I don't forgive? Of course I'm going to forgive man, you know. And so this was a, a Persian revelation given to the Prophet ﷺ. And so if people you know, think that it's, it's, not, it's not correct for a Prophet of God to receive revelations in a, a language which he doesn't know, then they first have to, if they're Muslim, they first have to ask why this happened to the Prophet ﷺ. But at the end of the day, like Dr. Saab said, it's for Allah to decide which language he's going to send the, uh, you know, the, the revelation in. And uh, Allah knows best why it's so, and there must be some kind of a reason for it to be so. One reason which does spring to mind is that from that time onwards, English as a language was going to play a very important role in the spread of Islam, the second phase of the spread of Islam, which was the perfection of the propagation of the message of the Prophet Muhammad to the rest of the world which had not heard of it yet. We had the whole of the Americas, we had Australia, we had uh, most of Africa, because only you know, parts of Africa were touched by Islam in the beginning, in the first phase, at the, at the time of the Prophet and after you know, his uh, successors who followed him. But uh, the rest of the world was just lying there, and even today we're still reaching people who haven't heard of Islam properly yet. They've heard maybe the name, mm -hmm. but they don't know what it's about. And so English was going to uh, play a role in that, and we see what role it's playing. And we ourselves are sitting here speaking in the English language to give the message of Islam out to the world. So it's clear that the English language has, was going to have a role to play. And so it's fitting that some of the revelations should be sent in that language. Allah knows best, but this is what he's done. So there must be a reason for it. 
Jazakumullah, gentlemen, for that. I, the second question um, that he's asking is in relation to the promised Messiah, and we have covered this in previous programs about um, being called a prophet. He's pointing to uh, some hadith. He, he's saying Sahih Muslim, and he's asking for hadith to this effect. But also, I suppose there is reference made uh, you know, from a Quranic standpoint as well. Dr. Saab, if we could take that question, and this is something which is, obviously, it's, uh, we're challenged by Muslims of other denominations at times to say, well, you know, how can it be that their literal interpretation of Atman Nabeen has always been the finality that no prophet of any kind, of any sort, can ever appear again? And they put that down as a reason to justify their view that that the promised Messiah wasn't um, the person that he said he was. Yet we counter that by using, of course, Quranic and uh, reference from the authentic Hadith. Absolutely. I mean, the basis for the coming of a prophet after the Holy Prophet ﷺ has been contained both in the Holy Quran itself and in Hadith also. The Prophet ﷺ gave glad tidings that a messenger would come who would carry out the renaissance of Islam. In the Holy Quran, we know that there are verses which actually point out to the fact of the coming of the promised Messiah ﷺ in the latter days and also about those people who do good works to such a degree that uh, they would be elevated to the realms of prophethood in that respect. So this we know that the Holy Prophet ﷺ was the final law-bearing prophet that God had sent and therefore he was Khatum al-Nabiyyin, was the seal of prophets to that degree. But by way of complete obedience to the Holy Prophet ﷺ and living a life which was akin to that, then Allah the Almighty as a reflection, as a Baruz would, would raise a prophet, would elevate him to the station of prophethood. And prophethood in this respect was the receiving of revelation. Allah does not disclose the unseen to anyone except one he chooses as a prophet. Is again the Holy Quran tells us this. And as we have discussed in a previous question, the promised Messiah was incessantly receiving revelation from God Almighty about future events and therefore in that respect he was elevated to the status of prophethood. The coming of the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus we obviously believe that the same Jesus son of Mary did not die on the cross but passed away and is buried in Kashmir. So the second coming of Jesus was to be in the coming of another person within the realm, of, within Islam who would be a Muslim, who would be an obedient follower of the Prophet ﷺ, and would therefore be the second coming of Jesus. And as Jesus was a, reflect, was a prophet, Jesus son of Mary was a prophet, so too would the promised Messiah ﷺ, of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, be raised to the station of prophethood as well. And the Holy Prophet in his hadith, this is a hadith from Sahih Muslim, in which he has mentioned that the words are Nabiullah four times. So not only once, not twice, not three times, but four times he has stressed upon this point that the Messiah who would come would be raised to the station of prophethood. And this was the status that was given to the, Holy, to the promised Messiah through the Holy Prophet ﷺ himself. Just picking up on the final point then, Jangu Saad, about the repeating four times in the Hadith, I think our mm. uh, Abdul... Uh, Benusab also wants to know quite specifically what the hadith, the hadith is. is. Yes, I do have the reference here. Yeah. It's a very, very long hadith. I'm just, just going yes, to read I, a little portion of it, which where, the, where the, the, the mention comes in of you know, the four times. 
It's, uh, as Dr. Sabah said in Sahih Muslim, it's in the Kitab al-Fitan Mu'ashalat al-Sa'a, which is the book of sedition and the portents of the, uh, of the hour, of meaning of the latter days. It's in book 41, and it's number, hadith number 7015, so 7015. And it's a hadith related by An-Nawas bin Sam'an. And he said, and here I'm just quoting that little bit, Allah's Prophet Jesus and his companions, so Allah's Prophet Jesus and his companions, would then be besieged, meaning by Gog and Magog, here at At-Tu'ur, which is the mount, and they would be so hard-pressed that the head of an ox would be dearer to them than 100 dinars. And he's speaking, of, therefore, of a time which will come where, where Jesus, son of Mary, the one to come in the latter days, with his companions, would have to face hardship vis-à-vis -vis Gog and Magog. And Allah's Prophet Jesus and his companions would supplicate Allah, who would send to them some kind of insect or something, the word is Dabba here, which would uh, attack their necks, and in the morning they would perish like one single person. Allah's Prophet Jesus and his companions would then come down, and they would not find in the earth as much, as a sp uh, as much space as a single span, meaning the size of a hand, which is not filled with the, the putrefaction and stench of Gog and Magog. Allah's Prophet Jesus and his companions would then again beseech Allah, and Allah would save them from that situation. So this is where the four, four times is mentioned that it will be Allah's Prophet Jesus, uh, Nabiullah Isa. And uh, the thing is that um, this Prophet here is the one whom the Prophet ﷺ had described as being of medium height, of uh, pale brown complexion, and of uh, straight hair. Uh, quite specific, quite specific and, and different from the other Jesus whom he had seen among the dead prophets mm -hmm. in heaven when he went for his, uh, the Miraj, the uh, spiritual journey to heaven, where he had described Jesus as being, the, he also called him Jesus, son of Mary, as being uh, of tall, uh, rather tall, wide-shouldered, and uh, having a rosy you know, colour, complexion, mm -hmm. and curly hair. So this was a different person. And actually when he saw the second Jesus son of Mary in a dream where in the same, in, I mean in this very same dream where he saw the Dajjal, you know, circumambulating around the, the Kaaba, he actually had to ask, who is that person? And then it was said to him, this is Jesus son of Mary. But he'd already seen him in heaven and he didn't recognize him because he was so different. So this is the, the second one which is being spoken of here. And he's also being called Allah's prophet Jesus, you see? So that's very telling. It's quite specific. Gentlemen, Zakumullah for that. I think uh, that's more than answered in, in great detail the second question of Abdul Anisab. Um, the last question, um, a practical one, uh, Dr. Sahib, it's, he's asking why as Amdi Muslims um, don't we uh, raise our hands to our earlobes after the ruku position in prayer? because he's come across it in the hadith. And I mean, you could widen this as well, because mm. within the context, how one folds one's arms, you know, and so on and so forth. There are different traditions which have emerged, emerged rather over the years. But on this one, he's specifically asking that after Ruku, why do Amdi Muslims in practice and prayer do not reach for their earlobes as he's seen in a hadith? Or sorry, he's read in a hadith, and mm -hmm. I'm sure he's seen practice by other Muslims. Well, in this respect, um, Ahmadi Muslims are not the only ones who do not uh, uh, carry out the rafaya then, yeah. raising of the hands to the earlobes, going to Raku and coming back up. Uh, Hanafis and Malakis also believe that the Holy Prophet wasallam, did, uh, did not carry out the rafaya then in the latter part of his life. It is true that in the early part of Islam, this possibly was a practice that was done by the Muslims. 
but from hadith and from the accounts that we get uh, an, an idea that this was later abrogated and the Prophet would not do this. Some people said that uh, the rafaya then of raising of the hands, you know, going into ruku and coming back up was perhaps because in the early, early ministry of Islam and the life of Islam, mm -hmm. the Muslims used to hide the idols under their armpits and that when the rafaya then was on, the, the idols would fall down. But that doesn't seem to be very true either. But we know from uh, many companions of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Abdullah ibn Masood who has actually given a very pictorial description of the whole of the Salat as have other companions in Hadith. And there we find that the Rafaya then does not form part of the practice of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu and his companions in the latter part of his life. So therefore we do not carry that out either. But it should be mentioned at the same time that there are differences, as, as you have mentioned yourself, uh, in posture uh, of folding arms and or letting them loose. But we do not consider that these are uh, very major things that we should be, should be delving upon. Mm -hmm. Salat is a form of worship where we stand before our God and it is our intentions that are more important in, in that respect. So whether someone does it or doesn't do it in that respect throughout the Muslim world, when you go to the uh, uh, to the to Makkah, you will see many people f praying right. in many different parts, and we accept all of that. But in our time, the Imam of the age for us has given us the guidelines, and therefore we follow the Imam of the age and follow him in this respect as well. There's, a, there's an interesting point which was raised by Malik Saifur Rahman Sahib and Fiqh also the Mufti Sitzla of the time. He said that uh, we're told that you're, why are you so picky choosy? Why do you do the Rafal Yadain only at the beginning and then not in the other postures, you know? So he said, but the others are also picky choosy because he said there are reports in the hadith where every time Allahu Akbar was said and it was possible to live, th that you could raise your hands. There are reports of all of these. So why do they only do them in some and not in others? But the, the, the thing is that, you see, as a blessing, it's not forbidden as well if somebody wants to do the Rafa al-Yadain once every so often, you know, once in a while. Just because the Prophet did do it, but he didn't do it till the end, as Dr. Sabah said. So his final practice is the one we should follow, you know, basically. But if every so often, just out of the love for the Prophet that he did this at some point, so let's do it as well, just the once or something. There's no harm. It's not like somebody will be go going to hell because of them, something yeah, like yeah, that. I you think know? Indeed, I mean, the Eid prayer, yeah. for example, you know, when the, uh, at the start, yes. when the Allahu Akbar is recited several times, each yes. time. There's a Rafa uh, Yadain, yeah. exactly, raising of the hand. Hands. So there you go. You know, so these are very small points that shouldn't absolutely. become you know, points of debate and points of uh, divergence, really. Zakhullah. But, um, you know, as uh, Dr. Zai said so aptly, you know, for us in the Amdiya Muslim community, we regard ourselves as being blessed by the fact that we're following the reformer of the age, the promised Messiah, of course, and his direction. And then subsequently, through his guided uh, successors, the Khalifas, we actually certainly regard ourselves as particularly blessed because we have a source of guidance with us present. Uh, today. G gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks to uh, Abdul Ghani uh, Saab from Ghana. Uh, we're going to travel to LA, California for our next uh, two questions actually, which come from Dr. Asan Mahmoud Khan Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sahib. Jazakumullah for your questions and indeed your comments um, about faith matters. He describes himself as a loyal follower of the program. Mm. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say so. Um, the first question. Um, Dr. Saab, that he relates to uh, the Holy Quran, chapters 41, verse 34, 
where he's saying that the best in speech are those who call others towards Allah, to God Almighty. So as such, the uh, propagation of Islam is a source of blessings. Elsewhere, the Quran, he says, mentions a group of people, among others, who will lead the way in spreading the message. But surely, he asks, it's the duty of every Muslim to convey the message to others. And he's then asking quite specifically, whilst he's quoted uh, one particular chapter, in the way, again, he's answering his <laughs> question. Can, can we quote sources in the Quran and Hadith that point to this? But if I could sort of add to that question and saying, you know, one thing certainly within the Amdiya Muslim community we're taught is that every member of the community in everything they do should always bear that in mind that they're uh, showing the example and conveying the message of Islam and the renaissance of Islam. Absolutely. I mean, as a Muslim, uh, we have attained something that is very dear to us and that is belief in Allah and is our association with Allah. So for a Muslim, it, it is said by the Holy Prophet Wasallam that you cannot be a true believer until you want for someone else what you want for yourself. Mm. So because we want Islam and the Almighty Allah and connection with Him for ourselves, we want that for other people as well. So this is in fact a duty for everyone, uh, every Muslim, that he should be able to proclaim the unity of Allah and proclaim the peaceful nature of Islam to all around him so that they are guided to Allah the Almighty as well. And Dr. Saab in his question has correctly quoted from the Holy Quran of both scenarios where people are said that this is the best speech that you call people to Allah. But there may be some people who are more qualified in fact to carry out this duty and so this is their responsibility to a degree as well as well as someone who is not qualified as well to carry out this out. Mm -hmm. The Holy Prophet Sallallahu in many hadiths has talked about this and he, he has talked about the how such how these acts are so meritorious. He said that if Allah guides one man through you it is better for you than possessing red camels and we know that red camels or camels in, in fact were prized possessions in Arabia and red camels were obviously very much more prized uh, at that time. So it is better for you to call people to Allah and guide people to Allah and that would be better for you than possessing red camels. Perhaps it's like a, a red Ferrari in this day and age <laughs> yes. possessing a red Ferrari. So it is better that one, even one person that is said, you know. And he said whoever calls to guidance, he will have a reward similar to the one who accepts that guidance without detracting anything from the one who has been rightly guided. So these are just two examples of uh, the traditions of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, who has talked about how blessed uh, action this is and this is something that is for us all to do through our examples. You see the Holy Prophet ﷺ, his greatest attraction was his example and this is how people were attracted to Islam that the example that you put out there is what you practice yourself. So by being a good model citizen is the best example that you have of attracting people towards Islam and that is the best way of calling people to Allah in that respect. Jazakumullah, Dr. Saab, that's a very comprehensive answer. Um, the second question uh, Jangir Saab, Dr. Asan Saab is asking is the significance of the age 40 in one's life. Um, here in where we are, we often say life begins at 40. But he's talking about um, that the, indeed he points the, to the example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was commissioned by God Almighty at the age of 40. And he again points to the life of the promised Messiah, 
may God be pleased with him who received his first revelation at the time of 40 as well. Um, and also within the Amdiya Muslim community, we have obviously auxiliary organizations as well. And uh, within uh, the men's section, there are two organizations. One is called Khudam al Amdiya, uh, which is regarded very much as the youth of the community, and Ansar al Amdiya, which is uh, Ansarullah rather, which is those above the age of 40. He's asking in the context of all of this, what's the significance of the age 40? And why do we, and is there some benefit in splitting uh, the, you know, the people or the members at the age of 40 between Khudam al-Amdiya and Ansarullah? Yes, well, uh, during a little conversation we had very recently, Dr. Saab had uh, rightly pointed out to me that 40 is actually the age which is the only one mentioned in the Holy Quran as such. So it, it must be very significant indeed. Uh, actually, Allah says in the Quran that when a man reaches the age of 40, that's when he starts worrying about his children, what's going to become of them, and uh, you know, has he brought them up properly, are they on the right path, and also what's his, what he's sending for the morrow, for himself. Because when you arrive at the age of 40, you suddenly re realize that your youth is kind of behind you now, mm -hmm. and you can't, however much you try, you know, no, no, no uh, you know, amounts of, uh, uh, how would I say, you know, facelifting and all that is going to bring your youth back. <laughs> um, but also that your, your death is approaching now, you're kind of, maybe halfway or a little bit more than halfway, you know, towards that moment where you'll have to leave the world and, and go and meet your maker, as they say. So this is a time of reflection. And this is why, perhaps, when man is at his most reflective state, you know, after passing through the, the fires of youth, that God starts speaking to him and choosing him as a prophet. So this is why we see that, in general, the rule has remained that when a person has reached the age of 40, that's when God chose him as a prophet. Uh, we, we, we might find some you know, accounts of uh, prophethood starting a little earlier, but um, usually it's around the age of 40. And this is because man is there you know, at that stage where he's reflecting upon the world, on the meaning of life, on, on what's going to happen later, and all these things. Mm. So God, when he's in that turmoil, God you know, reveals himself to the person. So therefore, it's an age which we should pay particular attention to, and we should try to emulate the prophets as much as we can, as from that age. You know? I mean, we should start early, of course, but at that time, you know, really has to be done very, very seriously. And uh, some serious some thought has to be given to where the family stands, because usually when a man is around 40, then his children also would have been, at, they would probably be in their you know, late teens or even, you know, well, yes, around, you know, kind of in their teens, isn't it? So it's a, an, an age where it's make or break for them. And the father has a, a very important role to play in the house at that time. So a lot of importance has been given to this age, in fact. And Dr. Sab, just as a final picking up between this distinction between Khudam al and Ansarullah, you know, we in the community, you know, it's not, never, it's not that never shall the twain meet again, <laughs> but I mean, it, they do because you have the, obviously, the umbrella structure of the community itself. We're all men, women embodied within the Jamaat structure, but there are these separate organizations. What was the sort of thinking behind that? Why I think this, actually, the second Khalifa, Hazrat Muslim Maud, uh, he, uh, full of his wisdom was able to separate these two groups for very specific reasons. As uh, youth are growing up, they have different energies, they have different capacity, they have different capabilities at that time. And therefore they are able to undertake projects and uh, act ac activities mm -hmm. which are perhaps not being able to do after the age of 40, perhaps for physical reasons as well. 
but as, as far as their training is concerned, then they are going through a process, as Jahangir Sab has said, that they have not reached full maturity yet as far as perhaps uh, physio uh, physiologically and perhaps um, spiritually as well. So they're, they're going through this process of training, but once they reach the age of, of 40, then there is a, a certain change which we find in, in most people, and uh, they tend to contemplate more, and they perhaps carry out activities which they did not do before the age of 40, and this is the reason that the Holy Quran perhaps mentions this age of 40 as being full maturity. And I think this has to be taken in a spiritual sense as well. So that the Ansarullah in their activities then tend to focus on different aspects of the activities of the community and are able to at the same time guide those youth who are in the Khudamul Ahmadiyya in their activities as well. So it works in, in that sort of a process. And that is why Hazrat Muslim Aud has separated the two bodies in that respect so that both of them can carry out the activities for which they are best suited for within their own organization. And that is what we have seen in practice, isn't it, that Ansarullah Ishtamaz and Khudamul Ahmadiyya gatherings tend to be of a very different nature and perhaps they are more akin to the age groups that are talked about. Well, I mean, just as a final point on this as well, I mean, not only you know, there's separate things. There's healthy competition as well. At times, as you yes. pointed to the tug of war, both organizations, indeed, are ladies' organizations as well. Also, for example, do a great deal in the community through charity work, etc., and seek to excel each other in all that is good. And there's that, again, is an instruction of Islam, you know, try and do better than the next person in all that is good. And it does encourage that kind of healthy competition. Um, Certainly, uh, you know, in my time, I served as a senior office bearer mm. in the in the youth mm. association. No more, shall I say? But uh, <laughs> um, that's something that uh, we did pick up on. Um, just as a final point on this, on the youngsters, Jangirsa, um, perhaps in a minute or so, you could sum up that within the Amdiya Muslim community, the training of youngsters. So we have a Tfalul Amdiya, which is starts at the age of seven, and also Nasratul Amdiya for the girls at the age of seven. And that again is to inculcate the spirit of community and service to the yes, community. Yes, absolutely. And we see that uh, the Ansar also have a, a very, the, the men above the age of 40, uh, they have a very important role to play in, you know, giving guidelines to the different organisms who are going to be looking after these children, whether it's on the ladies' side or on the men's side. And we see that by dividing the community up, the different members and different sections, segments of the, of the community can also concentrate on things which are, as Dr. Sabah said, more related to themselves, you know. Because obviously some age groups find certain things boring mm. and other age groups find other things boring. I mean, if it was all sports and games, you know, more, you know, the older men would probably get tired after a little while. Mm. And if it was all, you know, talk of philosophy and religion and all this all the time, then maybe the younger ones would get a little bit bored as well. So. This is human nature. We all tend to have our own groups and our own, you know, we move with our own people, you know. And so this has been taken into account by the Hazrat Muslim Aud. And uh, I think it was a very wise decision to have these, uh, you know, separations in the Jamaat. Although they all come together in the Jamaat functions, but in their own activities they are quite separate and that's very much as, as it should be. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.